Well, good morning. Um, I bring you greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Um, It's been a blessing to be with you all, Park Hills Baptist Church, this this last five days about now. So Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know many of you, and um, I'm very grateful for your hospitality. I've definitely seen more of of the hospitality that, that Christ extends through us through his sacrifice on the cross for our sakes. So I've seen that in, in your lives, and I've really delighted to get to know a bunch of you, and hopefully I can meet more of you at the door, maybe afterward. But I have to warn you, too, um, when I got here, my voice started to leave. I don't know if it's allergies or what, so bear with me. Uh, it's coming back. Uh, I think that some of the, you that have heard it the last couple of days can affirm that it's getting a little bit stronger. So, so please be patient with me as I try to speak up and have a microphone to help as well. So imagine this scene. You're at your final supper, and you know that you're going to die. Just get this, get this picture in your head. It's the last time that you're going to see your children, your grandchildren. It's the last time that you're going to see your wife or your husband, friends, family. It's one of those moments in your life when you feel like you've almost stepped outside of your body. You're invisible to the room, and everything's slowed down, and it's just going in slow motion. You're just watching all these people that you love, and you're treasuring it up in your heart because not unlike us gathering here today, we may not be together in this room ever again, uh, together again. They're all bustling about, and you just look on them and smile. You're comfortable. You're not in a bed racked with pain. You're not suffering. You're completely sober, composed, and competent. If you could gather everybody together in that room and have them settle down and you could pray for them, I wonder what you would pray. What would you pray for those that you loved if you knew that you were going to die? Well, this text that we're going to be looking at today is basically that same situation in Jesus' life. In John chapter 17, if you want, you can go ahead and turn there. I'll read the text in just a minute. It's on page 766 in the Pew Bible, but uh, if you brought your Bibles along, it's John chapter 17. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 20 through 26. So John chapter 17, what's going on in the book of John? Okay, well, Jesus' life and ministry, we see him inaugurate his ministry. We see him call disciples. He calls 12 disciples to him. He trains them. He's with them for three years. It's as if it's their seminary education. Uh, They're with him day in, day out, seeing him, seeing how he behaves, how he prays, how he fasts, how he walks. They're seeing, they're hearing his teaching even. He's discipling these these 12. And then we get to John chapter 17. It's kind of like the bridge between his life and ministry and his ascent into Jerusalem and his glorification on the cross. So first, in John chapter 17, we see in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus prays for himself. And then second, and then verses 6 through 19, we see that Jesus prays for the 12, the disciples that have been with him in his life. 
And then third, we see that he prays for those who would believe in Christ through the message that his 12 disciples would preach and teach and take into all nations. So in essence, it says that he's praying for those who would believe through his disciples' message. So he's praying in one sense for all believers in, in the passage that we're looking for. He's praying this, if you're repenting from your sin, if you're turning from your sin, and you're believing in the sufficiency of Christ's death for your sins, that his blood covers your sin, if you're believing in the gospel, he's praying for you today. In a sense, when he got to that room and he knew he was going to die, and he was completely confident and sober, and he had his wits about him, he prayed for you. So it's difficult to know exactly when this happened, but it probably happened during the Lord's Supper, um, or it happened sometime between the Lord's Supper and when Jesus went into the garden to pray, where he asked his Father to let this cup of suffering pass from him, but not what he willed, but what God willed where in the garden he prayed and his sweat became as drops of blood because of the agony of what he knew he was about to suffer. So we're going to be focusing on verses 20 through 26. So go ahead and look down at your Bibles. Please follow along uh, while I read through, through the, these verses. So this is Jesus' prayer for believers who would believe through the message of the di- disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Well, if you're taking notes, I have three points to my sermon. So uh, if you want to take these down, it might help you to follow along throughout the rest of the time that we're together. The, the first point is that, I, that I'd like to make is from verse 20, is that the gospel is the message of Christianity. The gospel is the message of Christianity. The second point that I have is from verses 21 through 23, we'll be looking at it from there, that Jesus prays that, his, that the church might be one. Jesus prays that the church might be one. And then the third point, Jesus prays for the church to be with him. And we'll look at that from verses 24 through 26. Jesus prays for the church to be with him. In the midst of this, it's my prayer that you all, that we all, would be built up and more firmly established in the gospel and that you will be encouraged as Park Hills Baptist Church to be unified 
in your identity in Christ and in nothing else because nothing else matters. So look at verse 20 with me. This is the first point. The gospel is the message of Christianity. And Jesus prayed, my, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So like I was talking about the 12 disciples, um, he, he's praying that basically as the disciples go out and they take the message of the gospel with them, he's praying for the people who would repent and believe through that message. And we see that, that commission that Christ gives to the disciples in the Great Commission, where they're going out with the gospel. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said there, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the disciples had a task. And this is the mission of the church. This is the mission of all churches, is the great commission to make disciples. And Jesus commissioned them, and this is the message that they're going out to, to proclaim a message uh, in the world. So th that leads me to a question. What's the message? What's the message that, that the disciples were taking out into the world? Well, to teach everything that Christ had commanded them, for them to obey that, but then also you see inherently in the disciples that they're making, that those disciples then will be making more disciples. And that propagates down through the course of time, and bam, here we are. <laughs> A couple thousand years later, we've heard the message that Christ had entrusted to these disciples. So, but more specifically, what, what is the message? Well, um, in, in easiest, what, the easiest way to say what the message is, is the gospel, the, the good news of Christianity. Uh, but let's look at an example of what the disciples were teaching. So let's look at the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. So keep your finger in John chapter 17. We'll flip, back to, flip over rather to Acts chapter 2. And we'll look at uh, verse 22, and then I'll tell you what, what I'm reading. But basically, on the day of Pentecost, uh, Christ gave the gift of his Holy Spirit to those who, who would believe in him, would return from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And then Peter stands up to preach. And in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this is what Peter said. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So Jesus, he's, he's working miracles. Um, signs and wonders, okay? And then verse 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on to the cross. And then in verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now jump down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord 
and Christ, or Christ, Messiah, Savior, both Lord and Savior. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Can you imagine? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the message. Repent. So turn. Repent is just a kind of a fancy word to say turn. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. And, and believe in Christ. And kind of associated right in there with that is to be baptized and associated, and baptism is an ordinance that's given to the church associated with other believers, local church. But this, this is also the good news that, that Jesus taught. So in the inauguration of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said this, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent, turn, and believe in the good news. Jesus is praying here in John chapter 17. So flip back to John chapter 17 where we are. He's praying here in John chapter 17 for those who receive the message of repentance and belief. And this is what the gospel means. This is the good news of Christianity. So there's one God who has eternally existed in time past in three persons. One God, three persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery how that works, but it's the clear teaching of Scripture. It's the only way that we can process what Scripture teaches about Christ's unity with God. So one God in three persons. He was eternally happy in relationship and love within the Godhead, the, the Trinity, and as an expression of His glory, as an expression of His creativity, as an expression of His pleasure and of His power, He created everything that we see out of nothing. Everything that you can imagine to see with your eyes he created. He didn't create it because he needed anything, but he created it as an expression of his pleasure and of his power. And we can even, we, we get to see that. But at the pinnacle of his creation, he created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he put his image within Adam and Eve that they would be a reflection of his glory. You can think of it as a mirror that his holiness, his perfections, might be reflected and shown throughout the world through this Adam and Eve. But he, made, he gave them a commandment and, and made a covenant with them that if they would do what he would have them do, they could live forever in uninhibited eternal fellowship and joy and pleasure with this triune God. But if they did what they wanted to do instead of what God would have them do, because of the image that he had planted within them, because of his rights as creator God, they would incur his eternal wrath against them for eternity. His wrath forever in hell. And as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, no matter your ethnic background, uh, there's only one race. It's the human race. We are brothers and sisters of the human race, but because we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, despite our ethnic backgrounds, we have incurred God's just, almighty wrath against us. And we have no hope. In and of ourselves, we face hell. And some say it's a, it's a separation from God. Well, it's a separation from God's loving, pleasurable presence, but it's eternity in the presence 
of an almighty God's unmitigated wrath. Anything good you see in this world does not exist in hell. That's the bad news of the Bible. The good news of the Bible, the, the gospel, is that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to become a man, to live a perfect life that would please God, a perfect righteous life. He died a death as a substitute, bearing God's wrath, taking up the sins of those who would repent and believe on himself, and bearing the wrath of God so that there might be reconciliation between this gulf that we've created between an almighty God and ourselves. And Jesus died to bring us back to God. So, you might think, oh, that's a great story. Who cares, right? No. This is of utmost importance. It has a claim on your life, whether you choose to believe it or not. It's true. Christ died for our sins if we would repent and believe. There's a responsibility on all of us now that we must turn from our sins. We must repent and believe in Christ's perfect work on our behalf so that we might be brought back to this God and look forward to a glorious future in the eternal presence of the pleasure of God. So this, I mean, that's an encapsulation of, of the gospel message. Again, look at verse 20 of chapter 17. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, so the 12 disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe through their message. So friends, Jesus is praying for you if you relinquish the power over your own life and that you, you give your life over to Christ's reign and rule as, as the king of the universe. So if you're a believer, Christ is play, praying for you here. Um, and this is, this is of the utmost importance. He's praying specifically for Park Hills Baptist Church. This, this passage, uh, verse 20 through 26, is a concentrated condensation of, of what Jesus desires, wants, and wills for the local church, for your local church. You might be asking, well, what, what should we do in the future as a church? Well, in this passage, we see something of Christ's will for your church, for the local church. So let's move on to consider that. It brings me to the second point of the sermon. Uh, we'll look at verses 21 through 23 for this. It's Jesus prays that the church might be one. Let's look at verse 21 together. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So God is interested in saving the church to himself for his own glory. But notice there, especially at the end of verse 23, he's doing it because he loves you as well. Well, the first thing here, though, that Jesus prays for is that we would be one. So what, is it, what exactly does that mean? Is it, it, to be one is to have a uni unity, uh, to be founded on Jesus Christ himself, a, a common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't an unspecific unity of all people everywhere. 
Um, there's a condition for Christian unity. Did you know that? There's, there's a condition as a local church to have unity in a local church. It's the gospel. Are we understanding the same gospel? Is that the source, the foundation, the substance of our unity? This is one reason why non-Christians should not be members of a Christian church. Unity is founded on substance. Unity is founded on truth. So Jesus is praying in one sense that you would see your identity as a local church uh, as, as being unified, one, in one identity, one in substance of belief, of, of what we hold in common in our doctrine, our confession of faith, and then one in mission as well. So here's a question to consider. Do we create our own unity? Do, is this something that we conjure up uh, and just we, we create it? Well, I'd answer no to that question. And, and here's a little bit my, of my reasoning about that. So think about the human body. Does your pinky toe have to conjure up unity with your nose? Or does your hand have to come up with some kind of unity to your ear or something like that? Well, no. When, when, when God created us in our mother's wombs, he made us one, one body. It's just the way that he's made us. Now, that being said, the parts of our body need to work together to maintain that oneness. That's not to say that um, you know, I could punch myself or hurt myself somehow, and, and that would definitely not be a sign of unity. But we have to maintain, we have to defend, we have to fight for the unity of the body that we have at the point when we converted to Christ. We were knit to each other when that happened, but we do have to fight to maintain that. So con consider, again, later today, the passage that Samuel read in Ephesians chapter 4 about how we are, are one in substance of belief, how we're one in, in mission, how we're one in identity. Because if we, if we don't fight to maintain the unity that we have through Christ in the gospel, we can render ourselves completely ineffective, not unlike if our, the, the members of our body, our, my person, wars against itself. I can render myself completely unaffected. So we have to, to guard against that even in the local church. And then also notice in this passage too, in verse 21, that the unity in a local church should be like Christ's Trinitarian unity with the Father. So in verse 21, he said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So we as a local church should be so united to one another, so close that it, that it's that we're one, like the Godhead, like the Trinity, in a sense. So I wonder if you've ever thought about this, the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, that's that's nice highfalutin doctrine for you, uh, but there's no practical substance to that. How can that possibly that the doctrine of the Trinity be relevant to my life? Well, I I don't think you've probably ever considered this passage before. Think about the unity that Christ has with the Father. It's a, it's a unity that's complete. It lacks nothing. It's eternally happy in and of itself. It's a unity that spun the universe into, in, into existence. It's a unity that was so concentrated in creative power and glory that it even made us. The relationship between the Father and the Son is so glorious that as an expression of their unified glory and pleasure, He created 
stuff that exists out of nothing. Stuff that, nothing that exists. So in, in John chapter 10, he even talks about how he and the Father are one. Paul described that, um, he described Jesus by saying that he is the image of the invisible God. And then the book of Hebrews describes Jesus saying, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is praying here for us to be unified as one body in the local church. So don't miss, don't miss that, but also don't miss the reason for the unity. So is it a unity just to exist in and of itself? Well, look at verse 21. And there Jesus prayed this, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. So you see a unity almost even between the church and the Godhead. May they also be in us so that the world, so that our unity with God and in the local church exists so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is asking God the Father to make us unified for the purpose that the world would believe in Jesus, and specifically that the world would, would believe that Jesus is the Son of, of the eternal living past Father sent into the world. Okay, so that, that kind of leads me to ask a question. What's God's evangelism plan for the world? Well, look at, look at verse 21. Consider verse 21. Jesus says, Basically, what our evangelism plan is right here, that we and our church become members united together, covenantally, formally, relationally, organically, so that the world will believe that he is the son of God, the only hope for the fallen world. You might think that this is kind of a surprising evangelism plan. Um, What about street evangelism? What about going out and canvassing communities and going door to door? What about holding a huge crusade event like Billy Graham's Crusades? Well, those approaches to to spreading the gospel and and evangelism, they're not necessarily wrong, but they're not necessarily primary either. The local church is primary in God's plan for the, the, the spread of the gospel to all nations. And more specifically, what happens when we're together as a local church. That's God's primary evangelism tool. So when folks hear the gospel proclaimed and are challenged in your services to repent and believe, then they step back and they look and they observe the unity that we have as a local congregation, that it's around the substance of the gospel and the love that the the local church has for one another. That's Jesus' primary evangelism plan, the local church. Also consider John chapter 13 where Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus, I mean, I think that the, the Great Commission makes it abundantly clear that we are seeking to spread the message of the gospel far and wide uh, and we employ any tool that we can to get the gospel to the nations. But we also see here that, that it's really part and parcel of evangelism that the local church, and specifically the unity of the local church that reflects the unity of the Godhead and the Trinity is part of that evangelism plan in the local church. 
And where do you see that most clearly, the unity of the local church? Well, what do we do together when we gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week? What's the substance of, of what we're doing? Preaching. We're, we're singing the Bible. We're listening to the Bible as we encourage one another, hopefully outside of these walls, but also in these walls. Uh, we're singing the Bible. We're praying the Bible. We're reading the Bible. We're hearing the Bible preached. The substance of what we do when we're together. What, what are people seeing in that? And what does that say about our unity? It's the substance of our unity. And God uses that when we're gathered together to spread his gospel to all nations and to equip the saints for the further work of the ministry as we scatter throughout the week in a lot of ways. So ask yourself this question. Do your relationships in this local church, do they commend the gospel? Do your relationships in this local church commend the gospel? And even ask this question too if you're married and, you're, and your wife or your husband is a professing believer. Does your relationship with that Christian to whom you are united through covenant by marriage, does that relationship commend the gospel? This is one of the reasons why what we say we believe is so important. We can have relationships. I mean, we can talk about things that aren't the gospel. So I don't want you to all leave and think, oh man, goodness, I can't. I can't have a hobby or I can't do anything but just talk about this all day. But, but when we're together, I mean, are we talking about football all the time? Or are we talking about good food or, or music or the weather? Or are we talking about things that are just kind of interesting to our own subculture or, uh, that may be specific to our ethnicity or the region of the country or the world that we're from? That's not the kind of relationship that necessarily commends the gospel. So that's not central. I mean, we can talk about those things and share things in common, but that's not what, what is commending the gospel. Speaking the gospel and being encouraged by Christ's work on my behalf, on your behalf if you're believing in Christ, that is the kind of thing, the substance of our relationships that commends the gospel. I wonder if you've ever heard this phrase. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. I've heard that before. Well, it's usually used to promote that, um, the idea that our behavior can say a lot more than words. But that's a lie. The gospel, you can't understand the gospel without somebody telling you the message of what is contained within the gospel. Or here's another one. And this is used as a defense for why a lot of churches use video and things like that, is that a picture is worth a thousand words. Ah, yes. No. Um. When it comes to the gospel, those phrases couldn't be more false or more deceiving or more hurtful, really. The gospel is a message. The gospel is a message with specific content. Now, if you're saying, you know, um, that you can see, you can read the Bible, and you can, I have friends that were converted. They came to Christ because nobody was sharing the gospel, but they had a Bible. Okay, I'll grant you that. The message, though, of the Bible... <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't through just seeing an image. So the question then, if, if someone gives me a glass of water as an act of compassion, how does that communicate the gospel? If you're seeking to serve other people in the workplace and you just think, well, I'll just be, I'll be really polite and I'll be respectful. Um, I, I'm going to live a good moral life. And that 
is preaching the gospel, that's wrong. It's just wrong. Our behavior does add to our, you know, the credibility of what we say. But it's not primarily about behavior. It's about a message. Because for those of you who are Christians in this room, you can attest to this. I didn't earn my salvation through my works. I can't earn my salvation through my works. That's why Jesus had to die. So nobody can get the content of the gospel by me just doing things. Now, it's good to do things. And actually, James, in chapter 2 of James, he talks about how faith without works is dead. And so a, basically, a proclaimed faith that doesn't have works that support it and that add credibility to it, it's actually a non-faith. It's unbelief. But we must never put works on the same level of the substance of the gospel, the message of the good news of Christianity, of Jesus Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection. The proclamation, the speaking, the announcing of the good news of the gospel must always be primary, and it's the foundation of our unity. So as we're united together, the substance of what we talk about, primarily the gospel, that has an evangelistic effect. So, also, think about ways that you can be making your relationships in this church public. So if, if the world will know who Jesus Christ is by the way His disciples love one another, don't just meet in a secret, quiet place all the time. Meet, meet in public, and when you meet in public, have the substance of your conversations be gospel-centered, Christ-centered. So we have to let the preaching of the gospel and the conversations about the gospel and of how the Bible applies to our life be central to our lives as a local church, and that's the foundation of our unity. So friends, you don't want to be a church that's known for having the greatest music, the best-looking people, the most money. You don't want to be a church that has a good-looking building, and I know I'll probably step, step on some toes here, you don't want to be a church that's necessarily foundational to be known for publicly as a living nativity church. You want to be known as a local church because of the gospel, the message of the gospel. I'm not saying you can't do the living nativity, but I'm just saying you want your reputation in the community to not be about an activity per se, but about a message. So what's What's the primary way that we can make our relationships public? Think about that for a second. What's the primary way that we can make our relationships public? Well, here, now, the local church. Um, don't forsake the re regular gathering of the local church. Look, look down at verse 22 through 23 with me. Um, there, Jesus continued praying. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does it mean that Jesus gave believers the glory that the Father gave to him? Well, we know in Romans chapter 8 that, and in other parts of Scripture too that one day at the end of all time, at the end of all things, that believers will be glorified. But I don't think that that's necessarily specifically what Jesus is talking about here. He seems to be referring to the glory that emanates from the relationship between the, the three persons of the Trinity. 
Jesus is saying that the glory that exists in the Trinity and the union of the Godhead has been extended out and put into (laughs) y'all. I'm not, that's not a normal part of my vocabulary. Um, Has been extended out, the glory of the Trinity has been extended out and put in you. Jesus is saying that that, um, the glory that exists in the unity of the Godhead also belongs to the unity of a local church. It says something about God's nature. It says something about um, the glorious beauty of who God is as creator God, as sustainer God, and as a God who would send a Savior to redeem us from our sins. So we're united to, to Him by faith, and then that faith results in our unity with each other. So uh, if you've tuned out, this would be a great place to tune right back in to the sermon because I know I've been talking up here for a little bit. When a church is unified in the gospel, it emits the glory of the Trinity. Talk about an evangelism plan. Love each other in the church and the God who dwells in unapproachable light shows his glory through you. Paul even describes that the manifold wisdom of God in the, in the gospel's power to unite is displayed in the church to the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. Also consider what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory. Think about that. We with unveiled faces. What does that make you think of? Moses coming down from meeting with God and his face shone with the glory of God so much, and it was blinding that he had to put a veil over his face. This is talking about us, or you even see the glory of Christ at the transfiguration. But here we see, and we, us, believers, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By virtue of the fact, at conversion, that God put the Holy Spirit into your heart, that day you began emitting a light. A light that when you put a bunch of lights together as a gathering of believers in a local church, it becomes a a bit brighter, if you can think about it that way. So that some of us that are a, a smoldering wick where you see the smoke, but you don't see the flame. You need to bring that into the rest of the fire, the local church, and let that light up. So this isn't an individual transformation of being transformed more and more into the image of Christ, but it's a corporate transformation in the local church. So when the Holy Spirit lifts the veils from the, our eyes, to be, or even the veil to be able to see Jesus Christ for who he really is and who he is revealed in Scripture to be. And if we respond in repentance and belief in the gospel, we, get, we begin this process of transformation, emitting more and more glory bit by bit. So have you thought about the church like this? The church is a nursery school where we begin our transformation into Christ's likeness. And as we are united to the church through the gospel, we reflect more and more his glory. A preacher from the 1800s put it well when he wrote, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence 
of the divine character. It's the grand scene of the glory of the divine perfections. The local church is a display of God's glory. Now you might think, well, no, it's not. I've seen a lot of local churches and they are not displaying God's glory. That's why we have to fight for unity in truth, in doctrine, in the Bible. It's the only source of what we know how to do, what to do, and how to interact with each other. It must be the substance of what we do. But also, notice though that that Christ so closely identifies with the church that he doesn't say, when, when he encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul's going to persecute Christians. Did he say, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute churches? Why do you persecute the church? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, I should get to, to my last point. Jesus prays for the church to be with him where he is. Uh, verses 24 through 26. Look down there with me. The Father, or Father, I, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me from before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So we see a great hope here that Jesus Christ will bring us to be with where he is. This is the, this is the prayer of the Christian church throughout the ages. At the end of Revelation, what do they pray? Come, Lord Jesus. They identify so closely with their Savior that the things of this life, you know, Paul says that to die would be gain, to be with his Savior for eternity. Are you longing to be physically, to, to no longer walk by faith, but to walk by sight in the presence of Christ? Is that something that you look forward to? And I wonder, it, this, this can also cause sometimes a, almost a, a longing that can result in a depression even. Thinking of, I'm isolated, I'm alone, I'm going through trials, I'm going through temptations. I can't bear to work another day in this job. I can't bear to walk another day with this cancer. I can't bear to watch another family member die. It's too hard, God. I can't do it. I mean, it, I can see how thinking about Christ going to prepare a place for us and not being physically present here now could make you feel like you're abandoned. But in John chapter 14, verse 2 through 3, he says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I wonder if you've ever had a family member that you've been away from for a really long time and your heart just longed to be with them again. And even think about this. Um, if, you don't, if, if you don't work a job and your, your primary work is to be a homemaker, that is a high calling, a calling that Christ himself is doing right now. He is making a home for us. 
So if that's your primary mode of employment right now, which you're not getting paid for, possibly, if you're homemaking, that's, that's a divine job. But also we know that Christ has not abandoned us. He says also in John chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's also given us a helper in the Holy Spirit by giving us the Holy Spirit. He's also given us our church. That's one of the reasons that the church exists, to help us to persevere to the very end of our life here. Listen to verse 25 through 26. Jesus prayed there, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they, not the world, but believers, they, believers, know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is really amazing. We go out, faithful Christians go out with the gospel and make disciples, share the gospel, want to see conversions, want to see people folded into the flock of God's church. But the Father here, we see the Father here, He's sovereign in salvation. So righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you, they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. So we see Jesus is working through the disciples' evangelism. So Jesus is sovereign in salvation and evangelism too. He says in verse 26, I have made you known to them. That's an amazing thought. And, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for, for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Now, I'm not saying this saying, okay, we just all go home and sit down and watch TV and let, you know, God work to, to convert hearts without our efforts. No, we must go into the world with the gospel. But we also have to do that knowing that God is sovereign in salvation. It removes all boasting so that if we share the gospel, we give praise to God and glory to God. The glory goes to him, not to us. We didn't convert anybody. Well, Christ, we see at the end here, is in believers. Uh, In verse 26, you, you can see that at the very end there. We know that he is present in his people through the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is why the church is known as the body of Christ. So I was talking about that a little bit earlier, that Jesus identifies so closely the church that he calls him the persecution against the church himself. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Have you ever heard that? I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Friend, I, I can see why you would say that, because we're all sinners, we aren't, per, we aren't a gathering of perfect, fully holy people here. So I can understand why you say that. You might have seen a lot of churches, they fight a lot. They have quarrels. They, uh, they divide. They, they fight. They even, yeah, they, they bring lawsuits up against each other. But don't miss this. The church, as sin-filled as it is, is still Christ's body. So don't give up on the church. Uh, it's, it's even so much to the point that if you claim to be a believer and you refuse to join a local church, 
you actually might be rejecting Christ himself. Just, I'll let you chew on that. So re- remember the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says this, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, this is strong language, uh, and it should really reorient ourselves the way that we view the church. Some of you might think, well, I wouldn't want to join a local church because it'll slow me down. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to join a local church because, you know, they they're just move too slow and they don't have a vibrant faith and I think I can do that on my own. Well, my pastor says this to a bunch of folks um, that it, it, when they have that question, he'll say, well, friend, have you ever thought that maybe God has ordained that you should join a church to help speed it up? So, friends, I just want to encourage you, don't give up on the local church. You'll see difficulties. You'll see problems. Fight for the unity that you are given the day that you became a Christian. And fight for the unity that you have, that you see in the documents of the statement of faith that you have in the gospel. Well, I should, I should probably conclude. So, again, we see Jesus praying for those whom he loved after the, at the Lord's Supper here, between when he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray there. And he thought of you and me in that very time, even though we weren't present, and he prayed for us. So what did Jesus think of in uh, the face of his imminent death? He thought of us. He prayed for our good. And he prayed specifically for our trust in the gospel. He prayed for that trust to issue into a unity that's founded in gospel truth. And then he prayed also that that unity in gospel truth would result in the glory of God as the gospel goes out into all the world. So fight to keep this unity. Fight to keep this unity. Love one another in the process. I'm not saying physically fight, but struggle with the the power of God which so powerfully works within you to maintain this unity that he's given you. So I wonder where you're at today in your walk with Christ. Have you given up everything that you have? Have you given up the reins that you hold in your life and submitted that to the reign and rule of Christ? Have you relinquished the throne and the glory that, that you think and that our sin, in our sin, we think we deserve? Are you a slave to your possessions? Are you a slave to your job? Are you a slave to money? Are you a slave to sex, drugs? Are you a slave to selfish pride? Are you a slave to other men and paralyzed by the fear of others? Or maybe you just think um, in, in your, you're in the point of your spiritual walk where you think that by doing good things that God will just so overlook the bad things that you've done. Friends, give up all of this and turn to Christ. It's a fool's folly. It's a mad rush straight to hell to deny those things. Uh, to to deny Christ and to pursue those things. So give up those things, turn to Christ, and know that you can flee from the wrath of God that is to come 
by fleeing to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, lose your life for Christ's sake so that you might gain it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the the blood of Christ which washes over us and takes away our sin when we repent and believe. And Lord, we pray that you would sustain us by your word, that you would sustain us by the Holy Spirit that you've given us. Help us to know and to see you have not abandoned us. And Lord, for anybody that's here today that may not be a Christian, Lord, we pray that you would help them to consider Christ. His claims have a demand on all of our lives, and we shudder to think of where our lives might lead if we don't leave the things of this world and flee to Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would build up this church in unity in the gospel. Lord, that that would issue to the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. And Lord, even as we sing our, our, our last hymn in a few minutes here, Lord, we pray that we would be able to sing of your glory and understand even a little bit more now that your glory is even emitted and shown through the way that we love one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing of God's glory reflected back, I pray, in our lives and in our church. We will glorify the King of kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of hosts, who is the great I Am. Lord Jehovah reigns in majesty. We will bow before his throne. We will worship him in righteousness. We will worship him alone. He is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He is Lord of all who live. He is Lord above the to the King of kings, hallelujah to the Lamb, hallelujah to the Lord of lords, who is the great I Am. Amen. You may be seated. Indeed, have a display of God's glory. Thank you, Noah, for bringing God's word to us. A challenging word, very challenging word. But this is God's message for our church and Jesus' prayer for his church and for us specifically, Park Hills Baptist Church, 2,000 years later. Let's bow our heads in final prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Equip us with everything good, 
for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.